We recently published a podcast and article on our website about tight writing, and an astute listener asked a follow-up question. Hello, Mignon. I have a follow-up question regarding uh, your last week episode, actually on um, on writing in a more compact way. And I was wondering whether there are any cases um, in particular where you do want to lengthen your sentence, where you want to add some more words that are in the middle to prove your point, or where you do want some repetition to, like for rhythm or for convention. Are there any cases like this, or should we always... Um, like, I get it's a general rule that we do want to write more compactly, but like, are there any cases where we actually want to make a sentence longer? Yeah, that's my question. Thank you for your podcast and the content. Love you. This is a great question. As with grammar, writing doesn't always follow a single set of rules. There are definitely times when you may need to include more detail or even use longer sentences. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. Stick around because after we talk about expansive writing, we're going to talk about the difference between the words behead and decapitate as a sneaky way to explore the B and D prefixes. One time you may want to use looser writing is in fiction where context, scene setting, and character development all help your readers enjoy and follow your story. This may mean more adjectives, adverbs, descriptive phrases, and so on. Similarly, in other kinds of creative writing, like poetry or personal essays, you often want to get your ideas out and make people think, so you might use some flowery language or even stream-of-consciousness writing. Academic writing is another area where you may want to use more words. This can include literature reviews, persuasive essays, research papers, opinion or commentary pieces, and more. According to the publisher Rutledge, Taylor, and Francis Group, quote, Academic writing involves expressing your ideas, but those ideas need to be presented as a response to some other person or group. And they also need to be carefully elaborated, well-supported, logically sequenced, rigorously reasoned, and tightly stitched together, unquote. Most importantly, academic writing involves thorough documentation of evidence, and sometimes you just need more words to do that well. Similarly, technical writing can require more words to make sure everything's exceedingly clear. For example, if you're giving instructions to an audience already familiar with the topic and lingo, you may want to give them all the nitty-gritty details, explaining every aspect of the process, design, and so on. But if your readers aren't familiar with the subject or don't need to know all the details, keep it concise. And finally, if you're writing for yourself, like in a journal, of course, the sky's the limit. The important thing here is just getting your thoughts and feelings onto paper or on the screen. So don't worry about keeping it tight. Now let's talk about writing loosely and what it looks like. Writer and writing instructor Gary Provost offered the following wisdom, quote, The best advice I can give you is to vary your sentence length. So write with a combination of short, medium, and long sentences. Create a sound that pleases the reader's ear. Don't just write words, write music, unquote. This advice itself is a great example of creating music or rhythm with your writing, as our caller described. There are many types of sentences you can combine to create this music. 
As you'll find in the book Grammar Girl Presents the Ultimate Writing Guide for Students, simple sentences have only one main clause with a subject and verb, like the kitten is in trouble. Compound sentences are made by joining main clauses with a conjunction or semicolon, as in the kitten is in trouble, comma, and he has destroyed all of my knickknacks. Both parts of the sentence could be complete sentences on their own if you put a period between them. Complex sentences have at least one main clause and one dependent clause, which could not stand on its own. Like, the kitten destroyed all my knickknacks while I was sleeping. Lastly, compound complex sentences have at least two independent clauses and at least one dependent clause, as in, the kitten is in trouble, comma, and he destroyed all my knickknacks while I was sleeping. So you use these different types of sentences to switch up your writing. And here's a note. With compound complex and compound complex sentences, be sure to use proper punctuation so your writing's clear and easy to read. Always use a comma before a conjunction like and, or, and but when you join two independent clauses. And don't forget about our friend the semicolon, which often gets no respect. To separate independent clauses that are closely related, when you want more of a pause than a comma and conjunction offer, but not as much as a period, as in, the kitten is a lunatic, semicolon. He destroyed all my knickknacks while I was sleeping. Now, if you want to add more detail or context to your writing, consider loose and periodic sentences. Loose sentences begin with an independent clause and end with subordinate clauses or modifiers. For example, the kitten is in trouble, comma, and he tears through the house like a lunatic while I'm sleeping, comma, destroying all my knickknacks. The main clause, the kitten is in trouble, is followed by various descriptive phrases. As Felicity Nausbaum pointed out in her 1995 book, The Autobiographical Subject, Loose sentences can be used to give, quote, the impression of spontaneity and immediacy, unquote. Periodic sentences, on the other hand, begin with descriptive elements and end with the main point, the independent clause. Compare this to the first example. Tearing through the house like a lunatic while I was sleeping and destroying all my knickknacks, the kitten is in trouble. In this case, the sentence starts with the descriptors and ends with the main point. Which type of sentence you'll use depends on the importance of detail in your writing and how quickly you want to get to the main point. The Kansas Medical Center Writing Center echoes Provost's advice, quote, During revision, pay attention to sentence structure. Using too many loose sentences can be monotonous, while overusing periodic sentences lessens their rhetorical, think stylistic, power. Instead, use various sentence structures, unquote. Break up the monotony with simple sentences every now and then, and remember that your first draft is bound to have some extra wordy sections. Don't worry about perfecting your writing the first time around. That's why we have revisions. Finally, whether you're writing in a tight or loose style, always consider your audience. What's your purpose? To entertain them? Instruct them? Persuade them? Educate them? Maybe you want to give quick bits of critical information. If your audience is very busy and receives several business reports each day, for example, you want to employ tight writing and get to the point right away. Remember the bluff, bottom line up front. 
But if you're writing a funny email to a friend you haven't spoken to in a while, it's perfectly fine to be wordier. Thanks for the question. It helped us highlight the different styles and purposes of writing. So keep it tight, but don't be afraid to loosen up when appropriate, too. That segment was written by Susan Herman, a retired multidisciplined language analyst, analytic editor, and instructor for the federal government. Next, I thought the following segment by Edwin Battistella, using the difference between behead and decapitate as a way to talk about the B and D prefixes, was an especially nice follow-up to our recent piece about the A prefix. I was teaching the history of the English language and had just mentioned that, following the English Civil War, Charles I had been convicted of treason and beheaded. A question came from the back of the classroom. Why do we say beheaded and decapitated and not the other way around? As in, why do deheaded and decapitated sound so wrong? I said I wasn't sure, but suspected that it was because the prefix B and head were Anglo-Saxon forms, and the prefix D and caput were Latin forms. Anglo-Saxon prefixes tend to go with Anglo-Saxon roots, and Latin prefixes with Latin roots, I speculated, dangling a research project for someone. Well, no one took me up on that, but try as I might, I couldn't get the B and D question out of my head. B, B-E, was especially puzzling because it has such a wide range of meanings and uses. In some words, B indicates loss, as in bereaved, bereft, and behead. But more often, B can hint at creation or causation, as in beget, betroth, bedevil, belittle, begone, become, befuddle, befriend, and bewilder. Or it can refer to things that have been caused or just happened to excess, like bejeweled, bedazzled, and bespattered. And it can note position, beneath, beside, beyond, below, and the old-timey betwixt. Sometimes the contribution of be is subtle. What's the difference between moan and bemoan, stir and bestir, loved and beloved? And as an aside, if you find this interesting, we did a whole episode recently about why some words that end in ed can be pronounced two ways, like beloved and beloved. That's episode 869. But back to the B prefix. Time has separated the meanings of some B words from their roots, stow and bestow, and knight and benighted, for example. And some have roots no longer used with that meaning, like berate, from the Middle English word rate, meaning scold. If you look in a dictionary, you'll find close to a hundred B words from becalm and because to bewitch and beyond. Many combine B with an Anglo-Saxon word, but not all. There is bespeckled, combining B with a word from Latin. And new B words are still coming, like begoogled. Decapitation seems to be a more clinical expression than behead, as befits its French and Latinate roots, and naturally it entered the language later. The Oxford English Dictionary gives a first citation from 1611. The meaning of the prefix D, D-E, seems to be regularly associated with the ideas of off or away. We find words like de-escalate, decaffeinate, decertify, deflate, depress, detoxify, demoralize, decompose, deprioritize, deglaze, and deregulate, where the semantics are fairly obvious. 
deceive to hide away the truth requires a bit of thought. Others are tricky. Derive is not from de-arrive, as one might casually hope, but from French derivé, referring to a ship's drift and also to the overflowing of a river. Like B, D is still a productive element. The 20th century brought us denazification after World War II, de-Stalinization in the 1950s, deconstruction in literary theory, deconstructivism in architecture, and de-siloification in data management. To me, the D words convey a technocratic tone you don't find in the B coinages. That leads to a final question. Are behead and decapitate synonyms? For behead, Merriam-Webster gives to cut off the head of, decapitate. And for decapitate, we find to cut off the head of, behead. While the two are close, the synonym isn't complete. A beheading seems always intentional, combining the causative and away-from senses of bee, and it evokes images of medieval swords and axes. Decapitation can be accidental, the result of a botched hanging, an industrial or vehicular mishap, or even a shark or crocodile attack, and it's more likely to be applied to non-human victims or extended metaphorically. An organization made leaderless might be described as decapitated, but probably not as beheaded. Beheading, with its Anglo-Saxon feel of swords and axes, fits English history, where headless parades of notables include not just Charles I, but Anne Boleyn, Mary Stuart, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Oliver Cromwell, the last posthumously beheaded at the order of Charles II. That segment was written by Edwin L. Battistella, who taught linguistics and writing at Southern Oregon University in Ashland, where he served as a dean and interim provost. His books include Bad Language, Are Some Words Better Than Others? Sorry About That, The Language of Public Apology, and Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels, Insulting the President, From Washington to Trump. It originally appeared on the OUP blog and is included here with permission. Finally, I have a Familect story. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Dave from Maple Grove, Minnesota, with a Familect story for you. Years ago, when I was vacationing with my family, we were stopped at a traffic light uh, behind a car that had a vanity plate with the letters Y-E-S-H-O-N-E-Y. My wife got kind of a puzzled look on her face, and she said, What does ye shoney mean? And my kids immediately started laughing out loud uproariously because at first glance, she hadn't internalized it as the two-word phrase, yes, honey. And from that moment on, Ye Shoney was born into our family, and its meaning has expanded since then. And it's, it's moved from vanity plates to hashtags or really anything that's short and abbreviated or concatenated and, of course, misunderstood. Thanks, Grammar Girl. Thanks, Dave. I laughed especially hard at this one because I am famously bad in my family at interpreting vanity plates like this. For example, there was a black Land Rover in our neighborhood for a while with the license plate B-A-K-N-B-L-K. And I looked at it and looked at it and asked my husband, Bacon Black? 
And of course, it was back in black, like the song. And we still joke about that today almost every time we're behind a car with a vanity plate that isn't immediately obvious. Back in black. Thanks for the call. If you want to share the story of your family act, your family dialect, or word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 833214GIRL. It's in the show notes. And be sure to tell me the story behind your family act because that's always the best part. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil. Thanks also to our ad operations specialist, Morgan Christensen, our marketing associate, Davina Tomlin, and our digital operations specialist, Holly Hutchings, whose favorite season is fall, and she lives for pumpkin-flavored anything. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.